0: Working on a weekend like usual. Way off in the deep end like usual. Swear they passed us, they doing too much. Haven't done my taxes,
1: I'm too turned up. This is First the Dan Grosso to pay to pay Show on 98.7 ESPN. <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. What's going on, New York City? Two minutes past here on a Saturday evening. Dan Grosso with you on this fine Saturday, the 10th of April, 2021 On 98.7 ESPN, 800-919-376. That is the telephone number. Working with the Jakes, hanging with the Jakes tonight. Jake Montgomery, Jacob Perry, and we're hanging with you right up until midnight. Four big hours, you, me, phone calls. Guests will have some fun, and we got plenty to talk about here. In New York City, when it comes to the world of sports, it's always a great time of year once you get into April because you have the start of the baseball season. You're coming down the home stretch with the hockey and the basketball. And, you know, at least for one of the teams in the New York hockey scene, that would be the Isles. They got a great shot at making the playoffs. Rangers are still facing an uphill battle. Devils, meantime, of course, are, you know, in about year seven of their rebuild, which just goes on and on and on. And, you know, for the first time in I don't know how long, we got two basketball teams in this market and in this town that – you know, look like they could both have eyes on the postseason. One of them, of course, with the Nets. They're about to do battle with the Lakers coming up here in a little bit at Barclays, and they could do some special things, but it's been a real refreshing Knicks season, one of the certainly more enjoyable ones. In a long time, the job that Tom Thibodeau, And his group is done over there, you know, Leon Rose reshaping the franchise. And I think all Nick fans really appreciate it. And, you know, they'd love to show their appreciation once more and more fans are going to be let back into Madison Square Garden. You know, that's a, a certainty. And, you know, we got all the NFL draft stuff coming up here in just a few weeks. And, of course, the start of the baseball season, which, you know, I guess the best way to put it is thankfully there's been a few hours in between the end of that Met game and now when we're starting to do the show. Because if I had to go on the microphone and do the show right when that game went final today at City Field, um, I don't know if there would be enough in the dump button there to be able to keep me on the air because I was none too pleased. And it gets to a point now where if you follow the New York Mets and you've watched this team on a night-in, night-out basis over the years, and especially when a certain pitcher takes the mound, number 48, you just really become exasperated because it's like you know the ending of the story before it even starts. And as that game was unfolding today, and DeGrom was punching out hitter after hitter after hitter, and yeah, he made the one mistake to Jazz Chisholm, who parked it up there in the old Pepsi porch. But then the Mets come up to bat, and they're leaving guy after guy after guy on the base paths, and they can't get that... Big hit to drive somebody in, and that game stayed one nothing for as long as it did. You knew how this game was going to end because we've seen it so many times. And I'll tell you, if I'm Jacob, De- you know, Jacob DeGrom, the fact that he's the best pitcher in baseball and the fact that he's on a Hall of Fame trajectory, if he could keep doing this for at least a few more years. Remember, he got a little bit later start than everybody else normally does on that Hall of Fame path. You know, this is a guy who, you know, didn't originally start out as a pitcher. He was a shortstop in college, and then he had arm surgery, and he wasn't even one of the more ballyhooed prospects in the Mets organization. Remember when he made his debut in the major leagues? He got called up with Rafael Montero, and DeGrom was supposed to be bullpen insurance. And then they needed somebody to make a spot start, and he makes his first ever start against the Yankees, and it's... Been no turning back ever since, but he's morphed into not only just a serviceable major league pitcher, he's morphed into the best pitcher in all of the sport. And when you see him go out there time and time again every five days and just absolutely dazzle and doesn't get rewarded for it, it's got to drive you crazy. Drives me crazy, drives you crazy, it's probably driving a lot of Met fans crazy. And the fact that he's able to keep his composure and go out there after each and every one of these games, after he gets no run support or the bullpen lets him down, and he's able to at least give quality answers to these questions without throwing his teammates under the bus because I don't know if I could in that situation because it hasn't been just one or two starts. It's been how many years? I mean, think about what the guy's done in just two starts this year. One earned run, 21 strikeouts. He's even helped his own cause or tried to help his own cause with three hits at the plate. And the Mets haven't won either one of the games that he started. And it's like a broken record at this point. That's what happens every time he goes out. I'm sure you've seen some of the numbers. In case you haven't, let me just run them by you, okay? Since 2018, that's when he won his first of two straight Cy Young Awards. He's got a 2.06 ERA. 2.06. And you know what the Mets record is in all the games that he started? 36 and 42. Now, you explain to me how a guy can be that good, that dominant, that great, head and shoulders above everybody else in his sport who practices the same craft, and the team can't even go out there and win the majority of the games that he pitches. And it's getting silly at this point. I mean, this is a guy who's still throwing 100 miles an hour in the eighth inning. You know, it's effortless. You know, you're not supposed to be doing this as a pitcher as you get older. It's just, I mean, he's a freak of nature. And, you know, maybe one of the reasons why he's so effective at the current age he's at right now, because he doesn't have as much wear and tear on his arm as some of these other pitchers do. I mean, go right now and check up, go on Baseball Reference, for example. Check out how many innings Madison Bumgarner has thrown in his career and compare him to Jacob DeGrom. It's like twice as many. And they're almost like the same age, because Madison Bumgarner came up a lot earlier, you know, pitched a lot of big games in the postseason. That's why Bumgarner looks shot, and he's got nothing left. And DeGrom looks like he's just hitting his stride right now. So that's why you can't rule out any sort of Hall of Fame and so on and so forth. But beyond the point of him being outstanding in what he does, okay, beyond the fact that you know you're going to get quality from him once out of every five days when he takes the baseball. And, yes, I know it's only five games, and we still have a lot of baseball to play. You know, baseball is the ultimate marathon, not a sprint. And it's easy to sit here and get carried away after a short sample size. I understand all those things. But what you see from the Mets right now through five games is really some of the same problems that have plagued them over the last couple of seasons. When they haven't been in contention, when they've missed out on the playoffs, and they look like a team that's still trying to find its way. You know, Michael Conforto was going up there, and the biggest contribution that Michael Conforto was made this year is getting hit by a pitch a couple of days ago. That's it. I mean, Michael Conforto has left a small army on the base paths this year single-handedly. Guy can't get a clutch hit to save his life. Forget about get a clutch hit. He can't even put the ball in play. He's a strikeout machine. You know, Michael Conforto, I know he's got a big uh, decision coming up in the offseason where he's going to be a free agent and he wants to make sure that he cashes in and he wants to make sure that he gets paid. I don't know if that's weighing on his mind at all, but if he keeps going at this rate and you project it over 162 games, forget about $100 million, forget about $200 million, guy's going to be lucky to even make some sort of a sizable contract. Now, look, he'll snap out of it, but, you know, I love Michael Conforto as much as the next guy. But explain to me, you know, from start to finish, in any season that he's been a big leaguer, has he ever had a dominant season where he's played 162 games and he wasn't injured or he didn't slump for a significant portion of the year? Tell me when that was. Tell me. And, I mean, the way that game ended the other day, too, when he did get hit by the pitch on Thursday afternoon, I thought that he had one coming for his ribs today from the Miami Marlins. I thought that they were going to settle the score. and say, all right, buddy, you want to lean into one? Boom, we'll show you what it's like. But then cooler heads probably prevailed for the Marlins, and they thought to themselves, you know what? Why should we hit this guy? He can't get on base to save his life. We're just going to pitch to him. <laughs> What's the point? You know, it would be nice for Mr. Smiles to also get a couple of big hits here. in Francisco Lindor, $340 million. And I know, look, the numbers are going to be there at the end of the season, but it's a little disappointing so far here in the first week of the year. It is. Now, $340 million is a lot for anybody. I'm sorry, it is. And especially in a sport like baseball where you're rewarded for failure more often than you even succeed. It's a sport that's designed to set up failure. You're a 300 hitter. By all accounts, that's good. But you know what? You made out 7 out of 10 times. You know, Mets are lucky right now that they can only allow 8,000 fans at the City Field because the reception would be none too welcoming. If they're going to keep playing like this, you know, and then today Diaz goes in there and he makes a one nothing game completely out of reach in the ninth inning. You know, this is a Mets team that can't score one run. You think they could score two? You can't. You think they could score three? No. So he set fire to the game this afternoon. And guess what? The jury is still out whether or not Edwin Diaz is even going to cement himself as the closer that you can guarantee and count on if you're a fan of this baseball team, right? Last year, to me, was a free pass. You know, people are getting all geeked up about how Diaz performed last year. No, 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 no. Sorry. I don't count that too much. A couple of reasons. Number one, what high leverage situations did Edwin Diaz pitch in last year? For one. All right, when was this team ever in any sort of contention? Number two, you didn't have any fans in the ballpark. So it was a much relaxed atmosphere every time that he took the mound. You know, give me those situations again, because the last time I saw this guy in those situations in a Met uniform back in 2019, he spit the bit. And he was one of the worst closers that you could ever want on the mound in those situations. It brought back, you know, the Armando Benitez chills when you saw Edwin Diaz a couple of years ago. So I am far from sold on this guy, so much so. That when Seth Lugo is finally healthy, I still have more faith in Lugo to get the final three outs of the game than I do Edwin Diaz. And that trade that Brody Van Wagenen is always going to be remembered for just keeps getting worse and worse and worse by the day. Where you got Cano, who popped for steroids, and forget about him, but you're still on the hook for him for two more seasons. You got Diaz, who was supposed to be the centerpiece of the deal. And meantime, all we hear about Jared Kelnick over in Seattle, even though that he started the season down at the alternate site, but he's one of the top prospects in all of baseball, and he's as close a thing to a sure thing as you have in the sport. Fun times. Fun times if you're a Mets fan, is it not? But it really just makes me ill watching Jacob DeGrom for how little they do for him. And I know that wins in this analytical world that we live in right now in baseball, wins by a starting pitcher, they're minimized compared to the way they used to be. I get all that stuff. But imagine being this good at your craft and getting no help whatsoever. Like imagine Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl, like you saw, where he was running for his life because nobody could block for him. He was making matrix-like throws that were hitting his receivers right in the face mask. Imagine seeing that like over the course of 162 games as opposed to, you know, every so often. That's what it's like when DeGrom pitches. I tweeted it out a little bit earlier. Like, he's the pitching equivalent of what Mike Trout is, where you excel at your craft above everyone else, and yet you're surrounded by ineptitude that betrays you and lets you down time and time again. Trout, best player in baseball, Right? Best player of the generation. Guy's first ballot Hall of Famer. He's been to the playoffs one time in his career. You know, maybe that changes this year. Angels are off to a nice little start. Otani's doing his thing great. But for the bulk of Trout's career, it's been, hey, I do my thing. My team stinks. And that's what's happening here with Jacob DeGrom. But it's even a little bit different being a position player versus a starting pitcher. Because a starting pitcher really, like, you only control one part of the game. Starting pitch, or I mean, if you're a position player, go out there, get your three, four at-bats a game. You play a, decent, uh, play a decent glove in the field, but there is still more to the game than just you doing your thing. Pitching, you get a record. Pitching, it falls on you. It's almost like you're the guy that still gets saddled with the win or the loss, even apart from the team itself. And it got me thinking, and I want to hear from you at 800-919-3776. When you think about New York sports, you know, because I was trying to rack my brain and to come up with some options here. You see a guy like DeGrom who goes out there and does it all by himself. Who are some of these guys that we've had in this city, not just in baseball, of course, but in some of these other sports that have basically been out there on an island, meaning they were so great individually. And they either got no help from the team, from the organization, or had very little team success. I got a few that I'll share with you, which we'll do when we come back. And I want to hear from you at 800-919-3776. We'll also get into the Yankees and their inability to beat the Tampa Bay Rays, which continues to present itself. We'll talk a little bit more Mets later on in the show with Anthony DeComo of MLB.com. And we'll also do plenty on the Jets, who made a pretty significant acquisition, or I should say transaction, earlier this week. And moving on from Sam Darnold, my pal Anthony Becht, former Jet tight end, part of the uh, Jets radio team. He'll join me a little bit later on in the program, too. So we got a lot to get to. 800-919-3776, 800-919-3776, telephone number Dan Grossa with you here on 98.7 ESPN on this fine Saturday night. You can get me on Twitter, at Dan G-R-A-C-A, as we are rocking and rolling here. You know, here's some more numbers. This is courtesy of uh, Ryan Spader on Twitter, which I saw this a little bit earlier today with DeGrom. Just trying to put an explanation on the excellence which he exhibits every time he takes the mound. Here's DeGrom the last four seasons right from when he won his first Cy Young award 78 games started out of those 78 games he personally has 25 wins ERA of 1.11 in those wins 20 losses in those losses he's got a 3.8 ERA which is still pretty darn good sub 4 ERA and you're uh, come out on the losing end 33 no decisions which are more than the wins and more than the losses. Thirty-three no decisions, a one-seven-six ERA. Think about that. that. That that that's insane. It's insanely good, but he's gotten used to it, is he not? So I, I was thinking about it, and I know that it's a little tricky because, you know, when you think about sports in this city and you think about this town, having to go out there and do it all yourself. It takes a unique individual, clearly. So you would think if you had a dominant starting pitcher who was so head and shoulders better than everybody else but was maybe on a bad team. I, I, I can't really put my finger on one of those guys for either the Mets or the Yankees over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Right? I, I mean, you know, the Yankees have done plenty of winning. And the Mets, on the other hand, you know, during their down lean years, they never really had that guy who was so much better than everybody else. I mean, you know, by the time they got Johan Santana and they had plummeted into being a poor team, I mean, he was kind of shot. He was a shell of what he used to be. You know, DeGrom is the closest thing to it. He gets no help whatsoever from his team. You know, and then you could think about, I, I think a good example is when you look at hockey and you look at a goaltender. You know, does Henrik Lundqvist fit that criteria? And I don't even know necessarily if he does. Because it's not like the Rangers were bad while he was at the height of his powers. I mean, this was a Ranger team that was a perennial playoff team. They went to the uh, Stanley Cup Finals. So they did more winning than losing when Hank was there. They just never captured the Cup. So I don't even think that it's fair necessarily to, to throw him into the conversation. I don't. You know, Ewing with the Knicks... You know, but again, they won a lot. They just didn't get to the top of the mountain, but they did win. You know, the thing about Ewing, and you think about those teams, the Knicks were criticized back then for never being able to give Ewing that help, to give him that dependable number two. You know, now we talk about super teams in the NBA with the big threes and whatnot. Ewing never had a guaranteed, legitimate, consistent number two. The closest thing he had was Starks. And, I mean, Starks wasn't an NBA superstar. He was a fan favorite. He was more, you know, embodied what New York was. But John Starks wasn't a guy that, like, people were leaving their team to go play with. Oh, I got to go play with that guy. He wasn't. He was a great Nick, but he wasn't an NBA superstar. You know, Charles Oakley was, again, same type of thing, but wasn't necessarily a guy that, oh, he's a legit number. No, I mean, he wasn't a, 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 a scorer. I mean, Oak was doing all the dirty work. You know, so I don't even think you put him into the category. You know, Melo's time with the Knicks, I mean, we don't have to get into it. And Melo wasn't best player in the NBA. Wasn't even one of the top five players in the NBA when he was with the Knicks. Not for my money. You know, so I don't even think you could put him in. You know, if you had a quarterback, if there was a quarterback for one of these teams with the Jets and the Giants, perhaps, who... You know, was just going out there throwing for 300 yards every single game, but either the defense was no good, had no weapons around them, bad offensive line, that sort of thing. Jets or Giants never had that guy. You know, when the teams won, they won. When they lost, it's not like they had somebody who was trying to vault them above everything else. They just didn't have it. So, you know, DeGrom might be the closest thing that we have or we have had in this city. And, you know, you let your mind run wild. And you just, you know, ask these questions, you know, what if? You know, what does the future hold? How could things change? DeGrom is severely underpaid compared to some of his contemporaries. I mean, you look at a guy like Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole's got a $324 million contract, right? Richest pitching contract in Major League Baseball. And Cole's real good. I mean, he's, he's really good. He's like that one guy right below Jacob DeGrom, probably, when you're talking about starting pitching. But DeGrom didn't sign a contract for that, but DeGrom's contract does have an opt-out after next year. Now, if it was me, and I see that I'm getting such lack of support every time I go out there, and if I maybe, I mean, look, you heard DeGrom right before the season started. He even said it. It came right out of his mouth. You know what? I want to win. I want to win. I'm thinking about the Hall of Fame. He said that. I am thinking about the Hall of Fame. You know what? Best way to do that is to go out there and win baseball games. And he's not getting the help from the people around him. We have that sound from today, guys. DeGrom, after the game today, was asked if he feels that his teammates maybe are experiencing a little bit of pressure on having to go out there and score runs when he starts. Does he think that that is a scenario that unfolds when he takes the mound?
2: No, not really. You know, it's a team effort. We're out there trying to win every baseball game. So, um, you know, those guys had a tough matchup today. Their guy was really good on the mound. Um, You know, he didn't
3: make many mistakes. So he did a good job pitching with, uh, you know, some runners in scoring position. And um, that's part of baseball. Uh, These guys do do a good job of preparing every day um, and – you know, they go about it uh, in a professional way, and today we just got beat.
1: I'm watching this game today, and I'm getting almost like deja vu. I said, this, this, this it's strikingly familiar. Like, why does this seem like I've, I, I've seen this already? Not just because the DeGrom's on the mound and they're going to find a way to blow it for him. Not just that, but specifically the team they were playing and the pitcher they were facing. And Trevor Rogers, and I had this I, I had this recollection, and I had to go look it up. And sure enough, last year, I mean, just to show you again how Snake he is, last year, there was a game at the end of August. It was a Monday, supposed to be an off day. Mets and Marlins had to make up the game. Marlins were playing in Florida the day before. They got on a plane. Came up to New York, 1 o'clock start, played the game just the one day in-out, and then we're back down to Florida right after that. Sure enough, they come up and they beat DeGrom in one of these fluky type of games. And then I went back and I looked at the box score. It was similar to how every other one of these DeGrom games go. He went six innings. He gave up one earned run, nine strikeouts. But his defense let him down, and he gave up four altogether, but he was only charged with the one. You know who the other pitcher was that day for the Marlins? Same guy who the pitcher was today in Trevor Rogers. Same exact thing. It's crazy. It's absolutely insane with what this guy has to deal with on a game-in, game-out basis. It really and truly does. And he could be setting a mark right now for when you think about, in our city, these athletes... Who have to single-handedly put a team on their shoulders, but nobody is there for them to help them out. And you just hope for the Grom's sake, if you're a Met fan at least, that eventually this thing is going to subside. And he's going to be able to catch some of that success. And yeah, he's still in line for the Hall of Fame. I don't think that people appreciate just the genius that you're watching. Like, this guy is scarily, scary good. Scary good. And he does it with such little fanfare. And he almost hides from the limelight. You know, and I know that he's gotten a late start, but two more years of this, he's going to be in Cooperstown. Wins don't matter anymore. It's going out there and dominating every single time you take the baseball. And guess what? That's what he's been doing. Dan Grasso with you here on 98.7 ESPN on this April Saturday night. 800-919-3776 is the telephone number. At Dan Grasso where you can get me on Twitter. So while the Mets were doing their thing in Flushing, Yankees weren't that much better down in Tampa. Uh, getting blank today by the Rays 4 nothing. They can't beat this baseball team. It's the bottom line. Now, you could talk about, well, it's only a couple of games so far this year. Yeah, it's only a couple of games. But guess what? This kind of goes back to last year, too, when they couldn't beat this baseball team, couldn't beat them in the regular season, couldn't beat them in the postseason. I mean, it doesn't matter. But I think when you look at the sample size so far for this team this year, so far you're talking about a team that just as a whole they're not hitting. You know, they're not scoring runs. Um, Not to jump on the bandwagon here. And say that, oh, well, you know, and obviously because he's not producing. No, I'm going to just let you know that from the get-go, I thought it was an atrocious idea to put Aaron Hicks in the three-hole. Okay? And, and it's, it's playing itself out to be as such. Now, I get it with Hicks. The logic behind putting him there at the three-hole, that he's not going to hit into a lot of double plays. He gets on base with the walks and all that stuff. So you don't want to necessarily kill rallies when those two guys ahead of you, you hope that they're on base with DJ and Judge. And, you know, you want Hicks to kind of keep the line rolling a little bit here. But it just hasn't happened thus far. And that is something that I would really look to address if I'm the Yankees and if I'm Aaron Boone. You know, Glaber Torres, Giancarlo Stanton, they've gotten off the slow starts here. Torres, you know, he's the guy that I looked at before this season and said, boy, if they want to get back, you know, to really being a team that you're going to fear, Torres has to be the Torres from 2019, the guy who was playing at an MVP level, the guy that to me, is really the X factor almost in this lineup because when he's at his peak and he's playing like a guy who you think is one of the top, you know, because, again, a couple of years ago, let's not forget, Torres was playing like he was one of the ten best players in all of baseball. That's how good he was, and we haven't seen that guy in quite some time. I know this team is playing hurt right now, not having Luke Voigt. All right, great, and, hey, Jay Bruce, forget about what he's doing at the plate. In the field, he's a disaster. You know, he did have some experience playing first, even from when he was a New York Met and, you know, a couple of other stops along the way with Philly, Seattle. But I I mean, to say that he's not exactly the second coming of Keith Hernandez or Don Mattingly or whatever with the glove, that's an understatement. And now you have to ask yourself, if you're Aaron Boone, you know what, how much longer can I keep trotting him out there at first base? Because, you know, in the long run, it could hurt us. You know, the last thing you want to have happen is Jay Bruce over there making a critical error where he can't come up with a throw. You know, he lets one get by him, and then that opens the floodgates to a game that you're not going to be able to dig out from under. Or a late-game situation to where, you know, you don't have enough runs on the board, and then possibly that can mean, you know, you're walking home a loser. Right? That is something you have to guard against. And, hey, I guess bravo to Aaron Judge that not only was he in the lineup today, he actually made it through nine innings. You know, so congratulations to him, baby steps. You know, Judge actually got himself through a game. Now, let's see if he can actually put two straight games together. That would be something. Now, we don't know if maybe maybe the Yankees are going to give him a day off tomorrow to rest his body after, you know, God forbid, he had to go out there and play nine innings today. <laughs> it's incredible, right? And I don't know if you heard the news, but Domingo Herman was sent to the alternate site after yet another ineffective performance this afternoon, I mean that could be one of two things. That could be all right. He needs a little bit more seasoning, which you know I think we could all agree on because we didn't see him last year. And number two, if you look at the Yankees' schedule, what they have upcoming over the next couple of weeks, they got a couple of off days there, so they don't necessarily even need a fifth starter. And right now, out of all the guys that they have in this rotation, I I I, I think that you know he's probably the guy that I trust the least. You know, Kluber's still trying to find his way back. Tyone, you know, he still needs to get stretched out a little bit more, but you like the stuff. Montgomery is, you know, Montgomery. And then Cole is Cole. Herman is the guy that has a lot of proving to do. And I think that that goes without saying. You know, and the one thing that's been actually okay for this team so far has been the bullpen. You know, that has not been the problem. But the issue that the Yankees are going to face here is that if the starters don't start giving them some length, then eventually it's going to tax the bullpen, and then that unit is going to be on fumes here. That's what they have to guard against. You know, you can't keep relying on this bullpen. That's the problem that the Yankees have had the last couple of years. The bullpen, the bullpen, the bullpen. Yeah, it's great during the regular season, but what happens once you get to October? You keep asking these guys to answer the call, and they can't get it done. You know, that's why the Garrett Cole signing is so big for him, to be able to have that stopper for you, to be able to go out there and pitch a big game, especially once you get to October. But they need more than just that. You know, they need more than just one. All let right, Let's get to the phones. Let us say hi to Fern in Orlando. Fern, you're up first here on 98.7 ESPN. How are you?
0: I'm great, man, except for this game today, man. Watching the ground lose like that broke my heart. I mean, he, I live in the town he's from. You see this guy at Home Depot. He's a normal, unassuming dude. I've seen him play in college. I love that he's on my team. But what they're doing to him is killing me. And my question is, how much of this is Luis Rojas's fault? I mean, he yanks him early in the, in the first game. Today, why isn't Pilar hitting for Conforto there in the sixth inning with runners on first and third one out? Conforto can't hit a beach ball right now. So, you know, Rojas I think is, has a lot of blame to go around here. I don't think that they play for him the way they would for like a Dusty Baker or somebody with, you know, some real Gravitas in that in that dugout.
1: Well, I mean Dusty Baker's a Hall of Fame manager for and I thank you for the phone call. I mean, Louis Rojas still's got a long way to go to to reach that level, and who's to say he's even going to? But um I'll say this. I'm not going to pin on what happened today, for example, on the manager. Because it's the same garbage. You know, it was the same garbage before Luis Rojas became the skipper. And it's probably going to continue even after Luis Rojas is the skipper of the New York Mets. If, indeed, the, you know, that happens. You know, what can he do? I mean, they couldn't score any runs today. The crowd made one mistake, and that was it. Threw one bad pitch, and that was it. But I don't put that on the manager. These guys got to hit. I mean, Michael Conforto, he's got to go out there and hit the baseball. Stop worrying about the damn contract. All right? Stop worrying about what Scott Boris is telling you in your ear about how, oh, let's get this to free agency at the end of the season. Boy, I think you could get $200 million. About $200 million. Forget about that. Like I said, you're going to get nothing. You're going to get nothing. If you keep this up, nobody's going to want you, at least not for the money that you're thinking. Go out there and put some at-bats together. Put the bat on the ball. Get a timely hit. Get a clutch hit. Drive in a damn run when it matters. That's what Conforto needs to do. But, you know, look, I don't put any of this on the manager. Now, look, if you want to get into his job status and his job security, yeah, I, I agree 100%. Luis Rojas is the farthest thing right now from somebody who's entrenched in that position. Let's not forget, he got the gig under very unique circumstances when they had to fire a manager who got nailed for cheating just a month before spring training started last year. Then you had the whole COVID shutdown. Then he gets a 60 game season during a pandemic, you know, misses out on the playoffs, but the odds were stacked against him with every, you know, you can have all the built in excuses from last year. This year, there's no excuses. No excuses whatsoever this year. And think about it. He's got a new boss. He's got a new boss, two new bosses, and Steve Cohen and Sandy Alderson. Steve Cohen, who paid how much for this baseball team? Billions, right? How many billions? You think for the check that he wrote for the New York Mets he's, and the $340 million he gave to Francisco Lindor, among others, You think he's going to sit there and settle for his team to be either non-competitive or to be out of the mix and not make the playoffs? No, 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 no. Steve Cohen has zero allegiance to Luis Rojas, zero. So in a couple of months, if this team is still floundering around and if they can trace the team's disappointing play back to the dugout and to the manager, then guess what? They're going to look for a new manager. Remember the Zoom call that Sandy Alderson and Steve Cohen did right before the season started? And somebody asked him point blank, hey, Sandy, have you picked up Luis Rojas's option for next year? And he said, no, I did not. Which, what does that tell you? Luis Rojas, you better win some games in 2021 if you want there to be a 2022. That's the bottom line. You know, he's been a long time met, been in the organization. Everybody thought he had a bright future, all those things. Great. But here's the problem you run into if you finally get a chance to be a big league manager and if you're a rebuilding team if you're a young team you know maybe you take your lumps along the way maybe they'll be a little bit more patient with you not with this team not with this job and not in this city you manage in new york you got to win you manage the mets you got to win You got stars on that team. You got the best pitcher in baseball on that team. Got a guy who's worth $340 million, $341, excuse me. You know, third richest contract ever given out in baseball on that team. This isn't a club that's going to catch people by surprise. This is the club. Remember the projections before the season started, even though I disagree with them entirely, but the fan graphs and the Pocota and all that stuff, they have the Mets running away with the National League East. I don't believe it for a second. Not that they wouldn't win the division but that they'd run away with it i mean this NL East is the best division in baseball then nobody's running away with this division mets the braves the I don't care who we are nobody's running away with it that made zero zero sense to me zero yeah but pretty soon we're getting a put up or shut up time and i'll tell you what while we're on the subject of managers How much longer do you think Aaron Boone gets a free pass? Like, really? You know, they fired a guy in Joe Girardi who did as good a managing job as you could possibly ask for in getting that team to within a Game of the World Series a few years back. And they replaced him with somebody who they thought was going to be better with the young players, better for the clubhouse, and so on and so forth. Hey, you know what? He hasn't lived up to his end. Has he? Has he? You know, he never even got him to a game seven of the world's, uh, of even the LCS. Yankees haven't been to a, within a game of the World Series under Aaron Boone. I know that. You know, Yankees got a pretty high payroll. Yankees got stars. They need to win. They need to finally get to that World Series, not just making the playoffs. Sam's a stud. Sam's,
3: uh, one of the favorite, one of one of my most favorite people on the team, just from a personality, work ethic, toughness standpoint. And when you make decisions like this, obviously there's a human element to it, and you and you hate losing good people. Um, but ultimately, you know, like I said, I, I do I do feel Sam's fo- best football is is a, is in front of him, and um, you know feel good about his landing
1: spot too. That's Joe Douglas, the Jet GM, from earlier this week after he decided to move on from Sam Darnold, reset the clock. And that's another element to this, too, the financial aspect. As we welcome you back in here, Dan Grasa with you on 98.7 ESPN at 800 at Dan Grasa, G-R-A-C-A. You can find me on Twitter. Um, <laughs> financial is a big part of it, as I said. Um, you know, whoever the pick is going to, and for argument's sake, let's just say Zach Wilson. You know, Zach Wilson, you take it number two. It's going to cost you $31 bucks for four years to have him on your squad. Sam, if you kept him and you kicked in that 50-year option, it was probably going to run you in the neighborhood of a little over $20 million, 22 million for the next two seasons. So a lot more bang for your buck with a rookie quarterback. And that's why these teams and a lot of clubs in the NFL – They try, if possible, to build a winner and a contender while you still have a quarterback on their rookie contract. Look no different than what's happening up in Buffalo, right? Josh Allen was drafted in the same draft as Sam Darnold. Compare the last three years to what the Jets did around Sam to what Buffalo has done around Josh Allen. Okay, the Bills went out there and they added to their roster they added to their offense they built up their offensive line they went out there and made a bold move in the offseason trading away a top pick to bring in a guy like stefan Diggs, so he can have a go-to number one wide receiver and you saw how that paid dividends this past season to where josh allen had an mvp caliber year and yeah his time is coming the bills are going to have to pay him no doubt it's going to cost them a lot of money but at least they have a foundation in place now to where they are already considered a super bowl contender all right, They already at least made inroads to do so. Jets didn't do that. Jets are now in a position to do that for the next quarterback. It wasn't with Sam Darnold. It's going to be with Zach Wilson. And there is a little bit of a risk-taking here. All right, We know that. Because a year ago this time, if you and I were having this conversation about the upcoming draft and prospects for... Zach Wilson wasn't even on the radar, guys. I don't know how much you follow college football. Trust me, Zach Wilson was not even on the radar. And that is a scary proposition. Now, he can end up having a phenomenal career. He can live up to all the hype and all the billing. You're a Jet fan, you hope he does. But nobody really knew his name a year ago. This is a guy who had to go out there and compete for the starting job at BYU. 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 So it is a big-time risk that Joe Douglas is taking here. Safe thing would have been to keep Sam Darnold. You know what you got. Build around him a little bit more. Trade that number two pick. Get a boatload of draft choices. Get even more capital that you can build with all the holes that you have to fill around this quarterback. They decided to restart the clock and go in a different direction. 800-919-3776. Cody in the car is up next here on 9870 ESPN. Cody, how we doing? Hey, Dan, how are you doing tonight, man? Good, Cody. What's going on? So I totally
2: um, agree with what you're saying, but I think the Jets did make the right decision trading Sam. Um, I think resetting the QB clock is the most important thing. And then um, now you have money, you have cap space, you can start to build around the new QB, whoever that may be, probably Zach Wilson. But um, for the first time in a long time, the Jets um, will have a coach, a QB, and a GM all aligned and not paired together by um, just – by, um, by everything. For right. the first time in a long time, the Jets have all three guys on the same page.
1: And that's key, is it not? No, I 100% think that's huge. key.
2: And to think everyone all in alignment at once, I think that's going to um, just make it a lot more easier for them to be all be on the same page and go in the right direction. I love Sam. I think he's going to have a great career in Carolina, hoping up and for the best to him. But I think it's about time for the first time in a long time that they have the GM, coach, and QB all in agreement with each other all on the same page.
1: Cody, that's a big part of it, and I thank you for the phone call. I, I do. And, I mean, shoot, you go back to what? Um, Rex, Tannenbaum, and, and Sanchez? So we're talking 2009, the last time that happened for the Jets? And we know how well that worked out, at least for two seasons. But, again, see, I, 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 I saw something posted on social media earlier this week. Rex was on with um, Bart Allen, I think. And Rex always liked to, you know, pound his chest whenever he does interviews, and he's a character, I get it. And look, Rex did a real good job with the Jets, you know, he was best head coach they've had probably in, you know, 20 years, since Bill Parcells, right? But you know, Rex is sitting there throwing Sam Darnold under the bus, and you know, he's talking up Sanchez, like, well, you know... Sanchez was better than Darnold. And went, yeah, but come on, man, because y- you can't sit there and make that statement and at least not acknowledge the fact that Mark Sanchez was drafted into a win-now situation. I mean, f- think about that team. If you didn't get a chance to hear the cut, he- he- here was Rex from earlier in the week. Here's the one I'm talking about.
4: I think it's great for the Jets.
3: And the reason I say it, you want a guy that's going to win 30-year games? Because that's what Sam Darnold was. But I remember now, I was one of the only guys that warned all the Jet fans that maybe this isn't as good a choice as you think it is. I was all in the Josh
4: Allen corner then, but I think I was the only one. But now it seems like there's a lot of people that claim they were on that same bandwagon, (laughs) even though it's not the case. But I love being right. I was right on this when I did say that everybody rips Mark Sanchez, but how does he look compared
3: to
1: Sam Arnold were you right on Geno Smith Rex were you right on that one were you right deciding to break down the team around Mark Sanchez and shift the philosophy and, and and put more on the young kids plate where he was out there on Christmas Eve 2011 throwing how many passes against the Giants what was it 50 60 right when he decided to just completely abort the ground and pound philosophy and decide to become, you know, the, the K-gun offense, basically, with Sanchez. That's when the ship started to go south. So was he right about that one? I mean, you can't, comp- I mean, that, that's what I mean. Like, you know, Rex is a character and you chuckle, but I mean, come on, let's get some facts straight here. I mean, the team and the situation that, that, that Sam Darnold walked into when he was drafted by the Jets is night and day compared to the situation that Mark Sanchez walked himself into. He walked into a situation where he had arguably the best offensive line in the National Football League, the, which ended up being the top running game in the National Football League, and one of the best defenses in the National Football League, led by the head coach. What were the Jets the best at at anything when Sam Darnold was here? Anything bryce and glenrock up next here on 98 7 bryce how we doing how you doing tonight good bryce what's going on i just uh i thought your point about no one knowing about jack wilson
2: last year and then everyone making a big deal about him this year you said it was like a scary scary thought to, for a Jets fan but i just wanted to bring up joe burrow and two years ago no one knew who joe burrow was and then he had that national championship run and he was the first overall pick, so I just You're think right. your point about no one knowing who he is and then being a big name is scary, but you saw that with Burrow, so I don't really see how that could be a valid argument.
1: No, I, mean, I mean, Bryce, it's, a, it's an extremely valid argument because guess what? For every Joe Burrow, I could give you a bunch of other guys who don't pan out, You know, and there are outliers, and, and, and if it is indeed Zach Wilson, I hope and pray that he is the second coming, and he is a future star. But, I mean, go look at the success rate period, not just of of guys that we didn't know about, let's say, the year prior to when they entered the draft. And I'll get into this more a little bit later in detail. But think about the track record. You know, over the last 20, 25 years in the NFL draft, how many quarterbacks that were taken in the top five, like, overall, end up being superstar players in this league? There's more guys that turn out to be busts than actual impact players. That is also another dicey thought.
2: Yeah, but that's just the draft. The hit rate on the NFL draft is super low. You you have to scout right, but I just I just wanted to come on and say that that argument about being a no name and then being a name everyone has has to wait for their opportunity and their shot. And Zach Wilson, once he got his shot,
1: shined as much as he possibly could. So no, look, he he did everything he was supposed to do. And Bryce, thank you for the phone call. But look, I, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. That's all I'm doing, because then he could also say, well, you know what. BYU didn't play anybody worth a damn this past season and I'm not even gonna throw that in his face I'm not because I can even give you examples of guys who didn't play really at a high level competition wise in college still had great pro careers I mean the late Steve McNair played at Alcorn State who the hell were they playing yet he came into the NFL and he won an MVP had a great career uh our buddy Joe Flacco what was Delaware D2 D3 uh Division 2 you know, the only the most high-profile team Joe Flacco in Delaware played his last year in college was Navy. Everything else was D2. Joe Flacco had a pretty damn good career, was a Super Bowl MVP, so I'm not even throwing that bad competition thing out in Zach Wilson. I'm not. He's got the tools. He's got the skill. My point is, is that, you know, he is not necessarily a stamped, signed, sealed, guaranteed, prospect sure thing like Trevor Lawrence was. And there is a little bit that makes you kind of uneasy if you're a Jet fan with that. You know, Kyler Murray, he was the number one pick in the draft, won a Heisman Trophy. Year before that, nobody knew that Kyler Murray was going to be a first-round pick. Forget about the first overall pick. You know what Kyler Murray was doing? Kyler Murray was going to go play baseball. He was a top-ten pick by the Oakland A's in the baseball draft. And then Baker Mayfield had success in Oklahoma under Lincoln Riley. Kyler Murray takes over. Lincoln Riley turns Kyler Murray into a Heisman Trophy winner. And then he becomes the number one pick in the draft. You know, these things happen. You got to make the most of your opportunities. Great example of Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow the year before, shoot, I don't even know if he was anything higher than a fourth-round pick. But then he went to LSU, had a damn good team around him, rewrote the record books down there, and the rest is history.
0: What's poppin'?
2: Brand new whip, whip just hopped
0: in. I got options. I can pass that like stocking. <laughs> Just
4: Josh. I'm spending this holiday locked in. My body
0: got rid of them toxins. Sports in the top ten. I can put the ball
1: in the end zone. Dan Grassi here on 98.7 ESPN. Rolling along on this Saturday night at 800-919-3776. Talk a little bit more on the New York Jets now and the changes that lie ahead for them with my good pal. You hear him on our uh, broadcast on Sundays here on the uh, Jets radio network on 98.7. Former Jets tight end he is the great Anthony Becht. Hello, Anthony. How are you?
3: My man, what's up, Dan? I'll tell you, that's trendy music. That That's the kind of intro that I want to hear coming on to the Dan Grasso show tonight. That's what
1: I'm oh, talking about. We give you nothing less. You know that. And, uh, you know, I should say, before we get into the whole situation <laughs> with the Jets here, I, I want to congratulate you and your lovely wife, of course, the proud parents of the newest Iowa State football quarterback <laughs> commit for the class of 2022. Rocco's going to be a Cyclone. Congratulations, buddy! That is very. I know you're pumped about it.
0: We
3: are. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, just a, you know, really cool time for him. And you know, it's you know when you go through the process yourself, and then you play at the highest level, and you have kids, and you think, oh, how's you know, what's your kid going to do? Do they are they going to be good at sports? Are they going to get involved in something else? And then when they kind of follow the path a little bit and do great things and you see him do it it's just really uh it's really rewarding as parents so you know yeah me and d are really psyched up for him he's super excited you know matt campbell is a gem man he is an outstanding coach an outstanding human being and you know if you can get your kid around good people i think that to me that's a win right there and then anything else that comes with it you know that that's a positive so uh Really looking forward to it. And it's a great opportunity for him.
1: Now, have you circled the first West Virginia Iowa State game? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'll tell you, it got it got touchy. You know, you know, West Virginia
1: obviously tried to
3: you know make a little push at the end there, but um, you know, listen, it. You know, in this in this recruiting game, I think f- from a kid's perspective, at least from my son, it's all about the relationships and uh, building that with you know schools and coaches and. You got to make feel. You got to make the kids feel comfortable where they want to go. But you know, listen. I mean, you know, Rocco grew up a diehard West Virginia fan, and of course, you know, myself, you know, playing there, it's going to be interesting. You know, you got the the, what is it, the ketchup and mustard colors versus you know the old blue and gold. I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully, the first game I'm at and he plays is at uh, uh, Iowa State, so I don't have to worry about you know sticking out like a sore thumb at Mountaineer Field uh, with you know the the Iowa State colors on. But you know, hey. You gotta, you gotta, I need a six-year sabbatical from from putting on the blue and gold for now so my kid
1: goes. I'll tell you, you're going to have some interesting color combinations as far as the interior decorating goes in the house now for the next five, six years between the ketchup and mustard and the, and, and the gold there. Wow. Yeah, it doesn't Yikes. match exactly. It's just
3: going <laughs> to be craziness.
1: No doubt about that. Speaking of craziness, um, the Jets – so, uh, what had been rumored became reality earlier this week. Uh, they've moved on yeah. from Sam Darnold, and, and and you and I talked. I mean, we you know talked about it each week, of course, doing the games and everything. But um, we don't know if it's going to be the right move or not for a couple of years, though. I'll ask it to you this way: um, How much of a risk do you think they're taking in doing this?
3: Yeah, you know, I think it's it's a risk either way. You know, you look at Sam and. You know, we've had these conversations. I mean, you, you feel as if when you watch him, if he had more pieces you built around him and you gave him some more guys uh, to have success, you would think, you know, just in general, you would just assume the quarterback would have more success. But that's not necessarily guaranteed. You know, we, we've seen some of the, you know, the I guess the, the mishaps throughout his career where you didn't maybe see him plateau or maybe you did see him plateau and you just didn't see him take the jump whether it was injury or, uh, you know, players were down and or just bad play on him. So, you know, it's like, okay, new offensive system, new coaches, new players, you know, hell, I mean, is it is it that much of big of a deal to bring a rookie quarterback in with a very, you know, listen, there's some fantastic quarterbacks coming out of this draft. If you get the right one, can you be just as successful or, you know, potentially equally as successful if Sam was there? I think maybe that's the mindset. So, yeah, you know, I think it works good for Sam. You know, again, there are some some wounds in Sam's game that he's obviously got to have picked up through the last couple of years that may not go away. And and unfortunately for the quarterback position, those things stick around sometimes. You try to fight them, those demons, and some of those mistakes or some of the things you've made in the past. But you bring someone else in, someone fresh, someone young. Yeah, they're going to make some mistakes here and there. But you know, they're they're clean. The mind is clean. The system is new for everybody. So I get where Joe Douglas and the organization kind of went with that situation, and they just gotta find the right guy now. That that's the biggest decision moving forward.
1: I'm talking with Anthony Becht here on 98.7 ESPN. The other aspect of this, of course, is the financials, where you can reset the clock with a rookie quarterback. It yeah. gives you some more flexibility to build around him, kind of do unlike they did to Sam Darnold when he was drafted in 2018. Realistically speaking, you know, do you think that this program can turn around within the next couple of years with either the 21 picks they have upcoming in the next two drafts and or the cap space that joe douglas can incorporate more talent here
3: they, they got to I, I mean uh you know this organization has been through so much you know over the you know the since at least i've been a part of it as a player and of course for you as a fan going even before that um, you know, look, Joe, Joe Douglas and Rex, and Rex uh, Hogan are just very too competent guys that that have been around some really good uh, organizations, general managers, scouts. And, you know, this is their time to shine. And I feel confident in both of those guys. And I put my trust in them, man, because, you know what, if they can't do it, like who else is out there, Dan, that can? I mean, it's like, you know, these guys got, you know, the the, the backing of you know, multiple successful organizations. Like, who else can you find that's going to do a better job? So with all those pictures, right, you have you know in particular this year cuz that's going to mean the most but you know all 10 of those picks uh, you get the two first round picks uh you know whoever that quarterback's going to be um you do start the clock back like you said but you know with that comes a little bit of some ups and downs cuz it is is a is a, a rookie quarterback but we have seen success now yeah. Uh, you know, a la Barrow, a la Herbert. You know, these guys have come in and done some good things, but they've got pieces now. They're not doing it by themselves. So that's that's the thing. But you've got to go out there and make the throws and make the plays, and that's the biggest thing. Like, can you get a confident quarterback to come in and say, you know what, taking this thing by the neck and I'm going forward. So they got to find that guy.
1: Let me ask you this. And, and look, all signs appear to be pointing towards Zach Wilson being the choice. If indeed he's the name on the card, what would be the biggest red flag to you when trying to see his game translate to the next level?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, and again, I don't know how you look at this, a scout looks at this, because I've seen it both sides of the spectrum as far as you know, not an issue or an issue, but you know, competition mm-hmm. to play going against those kind of teams he's played with against versus the last three years have not been good. I mean, bottom line. And the and the games that I saw this year where it was Coastal Carolina and Boise State, you know, they you know, they didn't play great against Coast Coastal Carolina and of course, you know, Boise State they won, but he didn't have a great game there. So Uh, You know, he had done a lot of good things throughout the season. He's not very big in stature. Not that that means anything, but he's he's just not a big guy. Like, you know, if he's going to be a guy that moves around and throws off-platform and gets out of the pocket, if he gets hit and knocks down and stuff, can he withstand some of those blows outside when a defender's running out of right before he throws a football? That's a concern. Now, it's not a concern if it's, you know, he can take those hits and he's good, but he has had some surgeries in the past. Who knows what flares up? But, again, that's up to the medical team to get that done. And just making plays from the pocket. I mean, you know, listen, quarterbacks in the NFL that go far in the playoffs have to make the throws in the pocket. Now, being outside the pocket is a big part of the 49ers system. Last year Mm -hmm. and the last couple of years and what they do, that's going to be part of the Jets system here. The off-platform stuff, that doesn't happen a lot. Like 5% of the passes are going to be that during the season. If you can complete those kind of passes, that's great. But those things aren't going to make or break a football uh, team season. So, uh, you know, he, he's got some things to work on. I mean, he's, you know, again, it's all these guys you can pull and pl- and prod a lot of their you know their strengths and weaknesses. But again, those are the things a little re- a bit a bit of the red flag. At least I look at when I say now I see some good things too. But when you ask me what I see from a red flag standpoint, th- those are things you have to make sure you, you do do justice on and, and and check them out.
1: Anthony Beck talking Jets with us here on ninety eight seven. With all this draft capital that Joe Douglas has, and we don't know if he's going to do any wheeling and dealing. I mean, he, he's he got a lot to work with, as we know. But let's just assume that the quarterback is going to be pick second, which, you know, we all accept as reality mm-hmm. here. With those next high picks, the second first that they have, they have the second round picks, yeah. a couple of thirds. Are you looking to continue to then surround the quarterback with offensive players or do you still look, try to address needs that you have still on the other side of the ball, which let's be honest, they still have some holes on defense too.
3: They do. You know, well, I, I mean, listen, uh, you know, priority positions to me, you know, cornerback is a priority for this football team. Uh, that's going to help the offense because if you can get off on third down, you got a guy that can cover. You right. Know, there's some talented guys that are going to be in that area. So that's one place you look at. You know, if you're going to have a quarterback in this system that played the 49er system, what was key for them? They better have a running game, somebody that can attack downhill, be a good runner. There's going to be some damn good running backs available at that position that you really have to think twice about. And then, of course, I think as you talk about getting into the second round, you you look for maybe a guard, some type of guy that can you know, can come in a tough, nasty guy that can move people. You have to have a running game, you know, with this quarterback, whoever you take. If you don't have a running game, you just can't succeed. And I just feel like, you know, with, with Beckton and some of the bodies that they have now, you know, they, they can build that run game and get that going. That's going to be important. We haven't seen a strong running game in New York since, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to say Curtis Martin because that's when I was there, but, you know, there's been a few back since then, but you've got to get something going. To 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 help the defensive side with the running game and of course the quarterback. So I would you know I would look at a running back one of you know any of those guys that are there ETN Harris uh uh, Naj- uh Najee Harris and of course mm-hmm. the Javante Williams kid from North Carolina man I mean if they're sitting there and you got your choice I mean that that's a consideration as well to, to, again to add a weapon for your quarterback.
1: No no doubt about that here and you know on Sam would you would you be shocked at all? if he goes and fulfills all of these lofty expectations that we all had for him here in New York, now that he's in Carolina? Yeah.
3: You know, I don't know. I mean, I'll ask you like, my big question was, you know, well, what was wrong with Teddy Bridgewater? You know, Joe Brady's supposed to be kind of this up and coming mind offensively. They were missing their best running back. One of the best running backs in the league, basically the whole season. He had to throw a ton more. You know, I know they lost a lot of games with, uh, you know, within a touchdown during the season. A lot of those fingers have been pointed at Bridgewater. Uh, but, you know, if I were to ask you the question, who's better right now today? Is Darnold better or is Bridgewater better at the quarterback position? I would say Teddy Bridgewater's better at the quarterback position. So maybe they feel like they got something in what he does and his skill set that will help. I don't know if he'll ever live up to it. You know how these things go, man. You know, everybody says, well, you get a a new place, go somewhere else, things change. Not necessarily. It's just, you know, both sides just have an opportunity to do something different. Who knows who it's going to work out with. But I want Sam to be successful, man. You know, we we watched this kid for three years go through some ups and downs. And, you know, I think the one thing that was a quality of him is he was able to shake things off. If he can do that and reinvent himself a little bit, man, he can be successful because he does have a good skill set that's, you know, a a positive skill set. that that would make a quarterback a success in the NFL with his movement and his ability to do things with his legs.
1: No doubt about that. Boy, it seems like it was just yesterday we were sitting here getting ready for a Jets draft and talking about the start of a new era, a new quarterback, (laughs) and three years later we're doing it all over again. Isn't that something?
3: Yeah, you know what? I I mean, this is such a critical year. Uh, You really have to make these, these picks become players and early. I think the biggest thing you've seen, a lot of teams that have won been able to draft well and i'll just take an example you know being down here in tampa you know mm-hmm. jason light has struck gold on a lot of these draft picks they're playing you know the 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 worse and the, uh the devin whites uh and the levante david when he got all these guys started day one and they become stars you got to find those guys and if you can find those guys and then the jets have to you know it's been a disaster from a draft standpoint you've got to figure out a way joe's got to hit on 50 percent of these picks and they got to be guys so it's a tough call to a tough duty. got to hit on the first guy. There's no doubt about it because that's going to be the most important. But again, you know, we, you know, you're talking about building weapons, putting some pieces around, you know, getting the defense better. If you're leaning on young guys, you better, you better find the good ones. And uh, again, this is a different, you know, with COVID and not seeing guys as much, and you're on Zoom and you're talking to guys not in the element, you're not with them. Those are tough, you know, decisions to make as a scouting staff and, 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 you know, personnel directors and, and GMs, because you, know, you don't get that personal role, you know, feel with some of these players where, you know, again, they're coached up pretty well during this process. And now they don't even have to sit in somebody's face and on a computer. And you really got to do your homework on these players. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, not just for Joe Douglas really across the league, as you get into the draft outside the first round, how these things shake out because, the teams that do their homework, they're going to get themselves some good players in the second, third, fourth, fifth round this year because just because of the fact that teams may have not been able to get enough on guys that are really good. It's
1: a great point. You, know, you mentioned the COVID thing. That's why a lot of these teams are kind of loading up on draft choices for 2022 because they hope by then yeah. things are going to be a little bit more normal, more regular when it comes to scouting and evaluating players like it used to be before the pandemic. But great stuff as always, my friend. Appreciate it. Congrats again on the new college QB, and uh, we'll be talking soon.
3: Thank you. You got it, man. Have a good show. See you.
1: This is the Dan Grasso Show on 98.7 ESPN. Two down, two more to play with here on a Saturday night. Grasso with you on 98.7 ESPN. Eight hundred nine one nine three seven seven six is the telephone number. Been a good one so far. We've kind of been all over the map, as a matter of fact. Little Mets and Yanks to start. Neither one of them knew what they were doing earlier today on the diamond, and Jacob DeGrom's brilliance once again spoiled by those around him, namely his inept offense and the bullpen today. Yankees just can't find a way to beat the Rays. Herman got roughed up pretty good. The bats went silent. And we've talked the Jets a lot with the team now transitioning from the Sam Darnold era to now what all appears to be headed for the Zach Wilson area. You know, I wanted to just touch on real quick on one of the things that Val said before we had to go to the break there about Trevor Lawrence and, and so on and so forth. You know, it became a common refrain, certainly, late in the season about how this team's fate was going to fall when the season was over. Would they go 0 six? Because look, for the longest time, it looked like they were going to go 0-16. I don't have to tell you. And then they won those two games there late in the season, of course, right? They went out to L.A. and they beat a Rams team that was sleepwalking for the first 30 minutes of the game. And then when they finally woke up in the second half, it was too little too late. And then they came back and they beat the Cleveland Browns who had no wide receivers Remember that day? Remember, like, all the wide receivers had COVID and they couldn't play and they were, like, running over the plays before the game, apparently, like, in the hotel parking deck before they came to the stadium because they were, like, plucking guys off the street to play wide receiver that day. But, hey, Jets won the game. No harm, no foul. But it did cost them the number one overall pick. And, yes, if you want to rewind to those times, it was pretty much Trevor Lawrence or bust. And then when they didn't get that first pick – It was, all right, now what do they do, right? And then the guy who was like the runner-up in the pageant sweepstakes was Justin Fields from Ohio State, according to most people. Not Zach Wilson. And this is a Zach Wilson, mind you, that already by the time you got to late December, when the Jets won that second game, it was a couple of days before Christmas, remember. Zach Wilson's season was over already. Okay, BYU had just played their bowl game. And it was his bowl game. It was one of the crappy bowl games like the first couple in the bowl schedule. They played Central Florida. I forgot what bowl it was, you know, one of those hokey games. But Zach Wilson played a phenomenal game, but he played a Central Florida team that wasn't any good. And their defense was like Swiss cheese. But all of a sudden, I don't know if it was a slow news period, whatever you want to call it. All of a sudden, that game finally, like, opened people's eyes to Zach Wilson and said, hey, oh, wow, look at this guy. Boy, he's talented. Maybe we could start talking him up to maybe be one of the first quarterbacks off the board in this draft. Then what happens? Okay, we're giving you, like, the, the chronological order of events here. Then a couple of days after that, Ohio State plays Clemson in the playoff game. And What happens? Justin Fields plays incredible, leads Ohio State to an upset victory over Trevor Lawrence and Clemson. Then it was, oh, my God, Justin Fields, he's the guy. And then there was all that crazy talk during that, like, 10-day gap or whatever it was between the playoff game and the national championship game about, boy, do you really think that there's a scenario where the Jaguars should take Justin Fields as opposed to Trevor Lawrence? Maybe Trevor Lawrence will fall to the Jets at number two because, after all, Urban Meyer at Ohio State, he knows a little bit something about Justin Fields coming from that program and blah, blah, blah. Then what happens in the national title game? Ohio State goes out there, gets walloped by Alabama. Fields plays a horrible game, and then it's, uh, no, maybe not. Yeah, Trevor Lawrence is going to be the number one pick. But, oh, hey, remember that uh, Zach Wilson guy in the playoff game? Hey, maybe he could be the number two pick. It's just crazy how all of this stuff happens, Right. I, I, I mean, it's insane. So, yeah, while we were going through this miserable Jets season last year, and it looked like they were on their way to 0-16, it was Trevor Lawrence or bust. And I felt bad for Sam during that stretch. I really and truly did. I feel bad for him, or I felt bad for him, because each and every week he had to sit there and answer questions about Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence, what do you think? And, you know, he said everything that you wanted a quarterback to say and really he controlled the fate of the franchise with the way he was going to go out there and play. You know, I would talk to him and you know just just you know private conversations, personal conversations. So it's like, you know, you could basically like alter your fate here. You go out there and you win a game or two and you're not the number or the Jets don't pick first overall. Guess what? Trevor Lawrence is going to Jacksonville or going someplace else and he might be back as the quarterback. But and then the scouting process happened, and we know what took place earlier this week. So um, I think he's going to do very well down in Carolina. I do. And, hey, I don't think there's a Jet fan out there that wants to see Sam Darnold struggle because I think he was a good representative for the franchise while he was here, and I think that ultimately it still could have worked out here, and he was dealt a raw hand while he was here. But I think if a Jet fan also gets their new quarterback and he is successful, you know, it's almost like Sam Darnold didn't happen. Buddha's in the Bronx. He's up next here on ninety eight seven ESPN. Buddha, what's going on, my man?
0: Hey, what's going on, Dan? How you doing, man?
1: Good, Buddha. Talk to me. What's on your mind?
0: All right, listen, um, the guy Val, who called you the last caller, mm-hmm. he touched on something that that has the real root cause of what the Jets issues are. Now, was Sam Darnold a turnover machine in college and a turnover machine in the pros? Yes he was. Was Todd Bowles a bad coach in terms of young people? He was a good coach when they had free agents, veteran players. When it was young players, the young players didn't respect him. So he was a bad coach. Adam Gates, was he a bad coach? Yes, he was. But these are all peripherals of what the Jets groups cause of their problems are. You have an ownership group that does two things that are not good. First thing is, and they like to have decision-making in terms of the football people. Like he said – The room was divided. That's a problem within itself. But the second thing, and what's more damning as a problem is, they don't know when it's time to totally turn over something to somebody who knows football. I've been a Jets fan for 39 years, and I remember Leon Hess coming to the epiphany saying, Mm -hmm. I'm an old man. I want to win now. He hired a coach that was a veteran coach that knew how to build a team, that had a Super Bowl in his pocket that not only allowed him to build the team through the draft, but it also said to free agents who were accustomed to winning, who wanted to win, they said, Let us come over. Buddha Buddha, let, let me stop you Buddha,
1: right let me stop you one sec. Right, let me stop later. you one sec. Just to right. cause you gotta backtrack a little bit. And you're right, everything you said about Leon Hess, but let's not forget when he first stepped to the podium. And he first said, I'm 80 years old. I want results now. It wasn't for Bill Parcells. It was for Rich Kotite. <laughs> I remember that. First, he fired Pete yeah, Carroll no, after no, one said, year.
0: No. Listen, Kotite was a bad hire, but he learned right. from that. Is oh, what absolutely. I'm saying. He absolutely. From that, and he pulled right. back. He brought in somebody who he could, like, listen, you run this thing, you do what you need to do. They dropped the boat. I'm telling you. It's coordinator after coordinator, and I don't want to tarnish Salah. I think that Salah has the opportunity to be a good coach, but it's similar to the same thing like what you were saying with Sam Donald. It's like with Zach Wilson. Who is his number one receiver? Who is his offensive lineman? It's no accident that the Jets didn't get the pass rusher that they wanted in free agency. When you are a veteran player, you look at a team like this and you say,
1: I'm not coming in. Well, to which let's just try which to pass rusher? But Buddha, let me ask you Come a question: on. what What pass rusher didn't they get that they wanted? They wanted Carl Lawson.
0: There was another guy that they wanted. His name is me Now he was the, the the more preeminent pass rusher than Lawson. I forgot his name. But it's, it's it's not just that. It's it's a lot of the players. If you think about it, like it's the same thing almost for Zach Wilson. That's going to happen if they don't get this right. You're bringing in people. That could be okay. You have to bring in people that you – you have to have a few blue chippers on your team. You need a blue chipper in your line on both lines. You need a blue chip pass rusher. You need a blue chip offensive lineman. As much as people like Becton, Wurfs was better than him. And that was a miss right there. We have to be honest about that. Wurfs was better than him. That was a miss right there. He's a more polished pass protector than Beckton.
1: Well, was. remember, but too, remember, to too, he, he, he to. also – Buddha, and, and, and I thank you for the phone call, my friend. Look, you you made a lot of good points and a lot to to dissect there. The thing about Worfs, though, look, Worfs walked into a tailor-made situation where he walked into already a pretty darn good offensive line, right, in, situ, in the situation down there in Tampa Bay. Um, you know, and, and he even could come in and play guard there for a little bit. They didn't just throw him right at right tackle, or excuse me, they didn't throw him right at left tackle like they did – With Makai Becton, and look, Makai Becton's going to be fine. Okay, Douglas looked like he got that one right on the nose. You know, that's the least of their concerns. But remember, they had Donovan Smith already down there in Tampa Bay, so Worfs didn't have to play left tackle. You know, you're not protecting Tom Brady's blind side by playing the right side, but he did well. He did well. Becton will be fine. Here's the other thing, and let me go in reverse order. First of all, Carl Lawson was the guy they wanted. Okay, he, he, he was, and if you look at the, me- the method at which Joe Douglas went out there and signed free agents, yeah, maybe they didn't necessarily get the super-duper splashy uh, you know, free agent targets out there who commanded the most money. Look, they paid a pretty penny for Lawson. They paid a pretty penny for a guy named Corey Davis, of course, at wide receiver. The difference is, and if you go and trace the way Douglas signed guys – you know, Shaq Barrett wasn't available. Tampa Bay didn't let him get out of the building. You know, Shaq Barrett, if you want to say, was like the number one pass rusher. Well, he didn't leave Tampa Bay. You know, the Bucks move heaven and earth to make sure they got their guy. Lawson has upside. Corey Davis has upside. These are guys who are entering their second contracts in the NFL. They're in their, you know, mid-20s, you know, 26, maybe 27 years old at the most. And they think that their best football's ahead of him. But it's not like rolling the dice on guys who were no good to begin with. You know, these guys have accomplished something. They've shown the ability. Now they think given them a new environment and they're going to get a chance to see their talents flourish. And it goes back to the Ozzie Newsome school of building a football team and building a contender. That's where Joe Douglas grew up. He grew up in Baltimore with the Ravens under Ozzie Newsome, who was a Hall of Fame player. He's going to be and should be a Hall of Fame executive. The Ravens were never big-time spenders in free agency. They were effective. But they didn't really get those first wave free agents. You know, they were in maybe on the second wave of guys. And then they made some smart signings along the way. And more often than anything else, you know why the Ravens won? You know why the Ravens are, you know, contenders year in and year out? And they have that Super Bowl championship from 10 years ago? Because they draft phenomenally. You look at all the guys that are responsible for the success that they had, by and large, were guys that they drafted, that they brought in, okay? And this is going back two decades, even more, you know? Ray Lewis' Ed Reeds, uh, Flacco, Terrell Suggs, Marshall Yanda, um, Holoni uh, Nada, I mean, all of these guys, They were players that the Ravens brought in, and that's what Joe Douglas, being the old scout that he is, wants to accomplish with the Jets. 21 picks over the next two years. Now you got to hit on them. You're not going to hit on every one, but you got to hit on them. And that's also part of the reason why the Jets are in the problem that they're in right now. And it goes back to one of the things that Buddha said at the beginning of the call about, you know, he mentioned Todd Bowles. He said the young players they had on that team didn't respect him. That's not true. All right, guys respected the heck out of Todd Bowles. They all did. You know what the problem was? They just weren't very good at football. The roster left a lot to be desired. Bowles and McCagnin were not on the same page. Okay, remember, they each had their own path to the owner. So the guys that Bowles wanted, McCagnon didn't necessarily want. And so you had that divide right there between the two of them. Jets had a lack of talent problem after that first year with Todd Bowles. And that's why when Joe Douglas took over, that's why he demanded from Christopher Johnson, you want me to take this job? I want a six-year contract. And that's what he held out for because he knew there was a lot of work to be done. When he sat down and he looked at tape of this roster, it's no secret. There's work to be done. And he gutted it. And now he's building it in his ideology, in the way that he sees fit, in the way that he best feels how to build a championship-caliber team. Now you've got to hope he knows what he's doing, and you've got to hope that he's right. That's all you can ask for. I mean, guys, I don't got to tell you. Go back and look at how the Jets drafted in the last five, six years. And I'm not just talking about the first round picks. I'm talking about, like, the entire drafts. How many of those guys are still actually on the team? One? Two? You know, from 2015 to 2018, how many guys in those four drafts are still members of the Jets? Or even go back to 2014 in that five-year stretch. That's why they're in the situation that they're in, because they did not draft well. And there's only so much you could do in free agency and trying to bring in other talent. The foundation of your club is in the draft and from the draft. We just keep the skeleton file of the story, right? I mean, because it's almost like you just all you have to insert are the number of strikeouts, how many innings, but it always seems like it's the same story either a no decision or a loss. And as we've seen in the first two games this year, Anthony, he can't be much more brilliant than he's been. He's even helping his own cause at the plate, and that's still not good enough. The question I have for you is. How much longer is it going to be before this guy actually cracks? And what I mean cracking is, you know, he says all the right things. He doesn't want to throw anybody under the bus. But you have to feel that this is bubbling up inside of him. How much longer can he keep this going?
4: Well, what can he do, Dan? That's the thing is, you know, I'm sure he goes home and he screams into a pillow or something. There's got to be some way that he vents, and I don't know what it is uh, publicly he is as cool as they come. You know, everyone in that clubhouse kind of backs that up, that he really doesn't lash out. He doesn't take it out on those guys, even though they would all completely understand if he did, because it, it, it's pretty ridiculous. Uh, you know, the stat that really stands out to me is, is since 2018, which is that line of demarcation mm-hmm. when he stopped being a really good pitcher and started being the best pitcher on earth. Since that time, he's got a 2.06 ERA and the Mets are eight games under 500 in his start. So, any human being would go crazy with that. But, uh, you know, to a large extent, Jake isn't human. So, uh, you know, it's part of what makes him good is that he is able to block out all of that exterior noise. You know on some level it kills him. Both the fact that, A, it's preventing the Mets from winning games that they can't score during his starts, It's preventing them from, in years past, making the playoffs, uh, you know, this year getting off to a bad start. B, there's personal legacy involved here. We're talking about a pitch, pitcher who right now is, is on a borderline Hall of Fame track, and he needs every number he can get to ultimately make it there into Cooperstown because he started so so late his career and because he didn't really become an elite pitcher until his late 20s. So, uh, you know, there are so many implications to this thing. I, like I said, if he goes home and, and punches a wall and screams into a pillow, I wouldn't be one bit surprised. But publicly you have to give him credit for the way he does handle himself
1: no 100 percent. you're right about that and it's funny about the hall of fame and i understand that now in this analytical world of baseball the win for a starting pitcher is almost devalued but i'll tell you something anthony you know it's not like he was chopped liver even before 2018 you know he was a rookie of the year he helped pitch this team to a world series in 2015 and you know you think about like the gold standard i know it was a long time ago in a previous era but a guy like koufax Koufax's last five years of his career, that was like as good a five-year run as we've ever seen from any pitcher. But before that, he was not on a Hall of Fame trajectory. So I think that, you know, despite the fact he gets no support, despite the fact that he can't get enough wins posted on his stat total there, he keeps this up. He still might find himself in Cooperstown when it's all said and done.
4: Absolutely. There's no question that he still can, and the wins really have nothing to do with it. But what's interesting about Jake's Hall of Fame case is that For him to get into Cooperstown, and like I said, right now, if he ended his career today, he's probably not in, um, but he certainly has done enough that a few more good seasons will get him serious, serious consideration. But it's all on him. He has none of those extra bells and whistles that other guys have when you start talking about Cooperstown. And, yes, you could be a mediocre pitcher or an above-average pitcher, I should say, but you have 250 wins. You're getting towards 300 wins uh, just because you logged so many innings. That's going to give you – leg up on some other guys it just is that's the way the voting works if you have a okay regular season uh, um, history compared to other Hall of Famers but your Mm -hmm. postseason accolades are off the charts that gives you a leg up on other guys Jake has none of that stuff because the Mets have let him down so much so for him to make the Hall of Fame it needs to be entirely on him he needs to be just completely dynamic completely unquestionably one of, if not the best pitcher of his generation. And the crazy part is he's doing it. He's doing all the things that he needs to do where, once again, if he has another, say, two great seasons, he probably crosses crosses that threshold and becomes a likely Hall of Famer at that point.
1: I think three Cy Youngs would go a long way towards sealing the deal. And look, I, for my money, and I know that we could only speculate. There's no right answer. I still believe, and will always believe, that if last year was a full 162 games, he's winning that Cy Young. I mean, after, you could still make the case he might have been the best Agreed. pitcher. Remember, the Trevor Bauer wasn't facing the same opponents that Jake was facing with the you know the regional schedules last year and so on and so forth. Jake had that one bad start in Philly where he left with an injury after two innings that bloated up his ERA. But I mean, he's on a course, and I guess. You know, here's the question, and and nobody, I guess, knows the right answer, but I'll still throw it at you anyways. We know that he's got the opt-out in the contract after 2022. Could you ever foresee a scenario, despite the fact that money talks and that's going to be the name of the game at the end of the day, could you ever see this frustration if it continues and he's not able to get the inflated win total over the next year or so, that he would look to opt out because he's just tired of being in this malaise that has become this franchise?
4: I really doubt it, Dan. I doubt that would be the reason. I, you know, I think as long as the money makes sense, he's going to be a Met for life. I, I look at it very much similar to the Dodgers' recent situation with Clayton Kershaw, where, yes, he hadn't opt out, but really both sides knew that as long as the money was even close to fair, you know, Clayton Kershaw was going to be a Dodger for life. I, I look at this as the same thing. It's a flashpoint to open up negotiations for Jake to get – some more money than he has on his current deal, but I would be shocked if he winds up going anywhere else, and I would be doubly, triply shocked if it's because of a run support type of thing. Because, uh, look, at the end of the day, it's not as if Jake doesn't have faith in these guys who he has pitched with now for the last seven seasons, or pitched in front of for the last seven seasons. He knows that these guys are trying, and he also knows that this is an elite offense, and through five games it certainly hasn't been. I believe it's 3.2 runs a game the Mets have scored, and in four of the five games they've scored three or fewer. Uh, that's not what this offense is going to be over the course of 162. Uh, Jake knows that. The Mets know that. If he goes somewhere else, he's liable to run into the same problems there as he will here. I, I know that there is kind of this lag effect from the Wilpon era, and everyone's still continuing to believe that the sky will fall. And let's be honest, the Mets have not good looked good, particularly the offense has not looked good, through five games of the season, but I fully expect that to turn around. I do think Jake's going to get some more support going forward than he's gotten in the past, and uh, the narrative will slowly change over time. But I, I really find it hard to believe that that's going to be the type of thing that drives him out of town.
1: Anthony Tacomo of MLB.com joining us here on 98.7 ESPN. Speaking of the offense, uh, number 30 right there, depth mag in the middle of the order. Um, look. It's been brutal, and now certainly he knows that it's out there. I mean, it's almost like you're expecting Conforto to not get the job done when he comes up now with men in scoring position. I know he had the episode there on Thursday, and I was wondering if maybe the Marlins were going to, you know, initiate a little payback today, maybe drill him in the ribs for what happened. But then I thought to myself, you know what? They know that he can't get a hit. You might as well just pitch to him because if you hit him, you're putting him on base, and he can't do that on his own. But – He's another guy who's got a contract decision coming up at the end of the year. Do you think that's playing any sort of a role in his struggles so far early in the season?
4: I mean, look, it's got to be on his mind to a certain extent because he knows how big of a year this is for him. I do think he's too good a hitter to really let that affect him and to just go out and have a bad year. He'll hit at the end of the year. But the question for Michael Conforto is what? how much will he hit? Because this is a guy who has never had a full elite season at the big league level. He he was on his way in 2017, hurt his shoulder and really took him about a year to get back to where he was at that point. Didn't have those elite years. The batting average was way down. The on base was way down. He always kind of brought that 25 to 30 home run power, but the other stuff wasn't always there. And then last year he did break out, but it's 60 games. It's in a pandemic. You take all of that with such a grain of salt. So this is his chance. This season going to really dictate what teams think of him going into free agency is he a nice player that you'd like to have on your team or is he a lineup anchor the type of guy that you build your team around that you're willing to spend 200 million dollars on so far there just hasn't been enough evidence that he's that guy and he might get a really fat contract anyway because if you look at free agent outfielders after this season it is Michael Conforto and then it's a whole bunch of Ugh. yeah so there's a decent chance he's going to get paid regardless but he's going to do himself a lot of favors if he goes out and has a 162 game season that's closer to the 2020 and so far he's not doing it it is just five games but so far he's not doing it
1: how much longer is the leash you think before he gets dropped down in the batting order from sitting there hitting third and Look, I I understand that you know you want to give him some time to work out of it here, but I, I don't love this lineup construction for starters. I mean, I hate McNeil hitting seventh, even though he's only got one hit so far this season. But uh, how much do you think Louis Rojas's hands are tied when it comes to just making out the lineup day in and day out?
4: I you know what I think the leash could already be up. I wouldn't be shocked to see Dominic Smith batting fifth tomorrow or batting third tomorrow. Excuse me, if Conforto down to fifth or even sixth in the lineup and. The Mets do have that luxury because we've talked about how deep this lineup is, how Jeff McNeil's been batting 6th, 7th in the lineup so far. That gives them the luxury to make a move like that and give you know take a little bit of that pressure off Michael Conforto and have a guy who can step in like Dominic Smith, who profiles as a really good three-hitter. I, Dominic Smith has had some great at-bats already this season. He's hitting the ball hard, one of the few Mets to get a hit today. So, you know, I think it would be natural, and I wouldn't be surprised to see it as soon as tomorrow Smith bumped up, Michael Conforto bumped down, let him kind of work things out and go from there. You know, I, I do think at the end of the day, you ask who makes this lineup, and it is Luis Rojas. Now, does it come with significant input from the front office, from analytics <laughs> department? from Yes. And Louis believes in all that stuff. But at the end of the day, if Luis Rojas wants to bat Michael Conforto fifth tomorrow, Michael Capora is going to bat fifth tomorrow. It is up to Louie if he wants to do that to kind of maybe help out or, or, or jumpstart a slumping player. And I am curious to see when that happens because I do think it could happen tomorrow.
1: And let's be real. I mean, this is a pretty much make-or-break season for Louis Rojas. As you know, and Sandy Alderson made it quite clear the other day, his option has not been picked up for next year yet. Steve Cohen, obviously, was not uh, the owner of this team when Louis Rojas was elevated to manager. He kind of got the job under unique circumstances after the Beltron firing. And, and I always point to another thing, too, this Anthony is that you know Sandy Alderson had been with this with this organization running it for the better part of a decade Luis Rojas was in the minor league system for a long time and it's not like Sandy Alderson you know made waves to make sure he was up with the big club you know what I mean so I I don't know how secure his tenure is as the manager of this baseball team
4: well I certainly wouldn't call it secure but there is a lot of respect and that and that includes Sandy Alderson for Luis Rojas. Um, you know, no, you know, Louis didn't become the manager under Sandy Alderson's first tenure, but he did go from being a really young hire in the organization, a minor league coach, instructor, and he really ascended pretty rapidly up the ladder under Sandy Alderson to the point where he was on the big, he became on the big league staff and put himself in a position that he could become the manager when the whole Carlos Beltran debacle happened. Uh, he had really ascended at, at a, a very young age to put himself in that position, and most of that did occur under Sandy Alderson. So I know Sandy has a great deal of respect for Louis. Um I think in a perfect world, Sandy Alderson would love for Luis Rojas to succeed in this role so that it's not a question going into last season. But, look, if the Mets believed in him fully, they would have picked up his uh, contract option for 2022, which they didn't do, and that's not – Outlandish by any means, but it does speak to the fact that they're evaluating. They're very much evaluating Luis Rojas right now. They know they have a very good team on paper, and if they don't make the playoffs, you know, it's going to be tough for them to bring Luis Rojas back at that point. So we've got a long way to go. Uh, You know, me personally, I've also known Luis Rojas for a long time. I know how pro he is, I know, you know, how much of a smart, solid baseball guy he is, and I would be somewhat surprised if he doesn't succeed. But, again, he's made some questionable decisions through five games. The results haven't been what he wants through five games. I really hate reading too much into that sample size. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, as I said earlier, the Mets are evaluating Luis Rojas, and it's it's going to come down to how he performs this season, whether or not he keeps this job long term.
1: Five games in, 157 more of fun, fun, fun still to go. Uh, Anthony, thank you so much for making some time with us tonight. I really appreciate it. And by the way, folks, Met fans, non-Met fans, baseball fans, everybody, check out my buddy's book, The Captain, the David Wright memoir. Fantastic story. Great job by Anthony. And, of course, David Wright there. Get it wherever books are sold, Amazon. You won't regret it. Uh, Thanks again, Anthony. Stay safe, my friend. We'll do it again soon.
4: Thanks, Dan. I appreciate that, and always good talking talking some Mets baseball with you. This
1: is the Dan Grasso Show on ninety-eight point seven
0: ESPN. <laughs>